Who would ever associate crime with those dear old homesteads? They always filled me with a certain horror. It's my belief, Watson, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. No man knew the hidden face of crime better than my friend Sherlock Holmes. My name is Dr. Watson, and it was my privilege to share the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I will tell you about the case of the Copper Beaches. It began, as so often, with a letter. It made Holmes want to laugh at first, but soon he was to take it seriously. And you will see why in just a moment. Well, it looks as though I've touched bottom at last. Hmm? This note I had this morning marks my zero point, I fancy. Here, read it. Oh, thank you. Dear Mr. Holmes, I'm very anxious to consult you as to whether I should or should not accept a situation which has been offered to me as governor. I shall call at half past ten tomorrow if I do not inconvenience you. Yours faithfully, Violet Hunter. Do you know the young lady? Hunter, I. Well, the note was written yesterday, and it's uh, half past ten now. Yes, and I have no doubt that is her ring. Yes, well, let us hope so. But our doubts will very soon be resolved for here, unless I'm much mistaken as the person in question. Oh. You will excuse my troubling you, I hope, Mr. Holmes. I shall be happy to do anything I can to serve you, Miss Hunter. Pray take a seat. Oh, thank you. Oh, this is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you do, Dr. Watson? <clears throat> well, Mr. Holmes, I think I should explain that I have had a very strange experience. And as I have no parents or relatives of any sort from whom I could ask advice, I thought that perhaps you would be kind enough to tell me what I should do. A strange experience. I have been a governess for five years, but my employer recently took an appointment abroad, and I found myself without a situation. I advertised and I answered advertisements, but I had no success. Then the little money I'd saved began to run short. I was at my wit's end what to do. There is a well-known agency for governesses in the West End called Westaways. And I used to call there about once a week. The manager, Miss Stoper, sits in her own little office and the ladies who are seeking employment wait in an anteroom. They're shown in one by one and Miss Stoper consults her ledgers and sees whether she has anything to suit them. Well, when I called last week, I was shown into the office as usual... But I found that Miss Stoper was not alone. Ah, this one will do. I could not ask for anything better, Miss Stoper. Capital, capital. Sit down, Miss Hunter, please. This is Mr. Castle. Thank you. You are looking for a situation, Miss? Yes, sir. As governess? Yes, sir. And what salary do you ask? In my last place, with Colonel Spence Monroe... I had four pounds a month. Oh, come, come. Sweating, rank sweating. How could anyone offer so pitiful a sum to a lady with such attractions and accomplishments? Oh, my accomplishments, sir, may be less than you imagine. A little French, a little German, music, and drawing. Oh, this is all quite beside the question. The point is, have you the bearing and deportment of a lady? There it is, in a nutshell. 
If you have not, you are not fitted for the rearing of a child who may someday play a considerable part in the history of the country. But if you have, well, then how could any gentleman ask you to condescend to accept anything under three figures? Your salary with me, madam, would commence at a hundred pounds a year. Oh. It is also my custom to advance to my young ladies half their salary beforehand, so that they may meet any little expenses of their journey and their wardrobe. May I ask where you live, sir? A Hatcher, charming rural place, the Copper Beaches, five miles on the far side of Winchester. It's the dearest old country house. And my duties, sir? One child, one dear little romper, just six years old. My sole duties, then, are to take charge of a single child. No, no, no. Not the sole. Not the sole, my dear young lady. Your duty would be, as I'm sure your good sense would suggest, to obey any little commands, provided always that they were such as a lady might with propriety obey, and which I or my wife uh, might give. Your wife? I should be happy to make myself useful, of course. Uh, quite so. Uh, we are faddy people, you know. Uh, faddy, but kind-hearted. In dress now, for example, if you were asked to wear any dress which we might give you, you would not object to our little whim, huh? Hmm? Why, no, sir. Or to sit here, or sit there. Uh, that would not be offensive to you. No. Or to cut your long hair quite short before you came to us. My hair? Oh, no, sir. Oh, not my hair. I'm afraid that is quite impossible. Ah, well, I'm afraid it's quite essential. It is a little fancy of my wife's. And ladies' fancies, you know, madam. Ladies' fancies must be consulted. <laughs> and so you wouldn't cut your hair? No, sir. I really could not. Ah, very well. In that case, Miss Stope, I had best inspect a few more of your young ladies. Very well, Mr. Rucastle. Miss Hunter, do you desire your name to be kept upon our books? Oh, if you please. Well, really, it seems rather useless since you refuse the most excellent offers in this fashion. You can hardly expect us to exert ourselves to find another opening for you. Good day, Miss Hunter. Next. Come along now. Well, Mr. Holmes, when I got back to my lodging and found little enough in the cupboard and two or three bills on the table, I began to ask myself whether I had not done a foolish thing. After all, if these people had strange fads, they were at least ready to pay for their eccentricity. Very few governesses in England are getting a hundred a year. Besides, what use was my hair to me? By the day after next, I had almost overcome my pride so far as to go back to the agency when I received this letter from the gentleman himself. Miss Stoper has kindly given me your address and I write from the Copper Beaches to ask you whether you have reconsidered your decision. And my wife has been much attracted by my description of you and is very anxious that you should come. We are willing to give 120 pounds a year so as to recompense for any little inconvenience which our fads may cause. They are not very exacting, after all, and your duties with the child are very light. As regards your hair, it is no doubt a pity, but I am afraid that I must remain firm upon this point. 
Now do try and come, and I shall meet you with the dog cart. That is the letter I have just received, Mr. Holmes, and my mind is made up that I will accept. But I thought that before taking the final step, I should like to submit the whole matter to your consideration. I confess it is not the situation which I should like to see a sister of mine apply for, eh, Watson? What can it all mean, Holmes? I have no data. I cannot tell. Perhaps Miss Hunter has formed some opinion. Well, Mr. Woolcastle seemed a kind man. Is it not possible that his wife is a lunatic and that for fear she should be taken to an asylum, he humored her to prevent an outbreak? Hmm, as matters stand, that is the most probable solution. But in any case, it doesn't seem to be a very nice household for a young lady. Oh, but the money, Mr. Holmes, the money. It pays too good. That's what makes me uneasy. There must be some strong reason for offering you 120 pounds when they could have that big for 40. Oh, I feel that too. So I thought if I told you the circumstances, you would understand afterwards if I wanted your help. I should feel so much stronger if I felt that you were at the back of me. Oh, you may carry that feeling away with you. I assure you that your little problem promises to be the most interesting that has come my way for some months. Now, if you should find yourself in doubt or in danger... Danger? What danger do you foresee, Holmes? It would cease to be a danger if we could define it. Well, now that I have spoken to you, I shall write to Mr. Rucastle. Sacrifice my poor hair tonight and start for Winchester tomorrow. Then don't forget at any time, day or night, a telegram would bring me down here. Watson. Watson, listen to this. What? Please be at Black Swan Hotel, Winchester, midday tomorrow. Do come at my wit's end, Hunter. So it's taken her just a fortnight to find she needs my help again. I'll look up the trains at once. Will you come with me? I should wish to. Capital. Then I suggest we turn in at once. We shall need to be at our best in the morning. How much further to go? Good. Good heavens. Who would ever associate crime with those dear old homesteads? They always fill me with a certain horror. It's my belief, Watson, founded upon experience, I may add, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. Horrifying. Yes, but the reason is very obvious. The pressure of public opinion can do in the town what the law cannot accomplish. There is no alley so vile that the scream of a tortured child doesn't beget some sympathy and indignation among the neighbors. And one word of complaint can set the whole machinery of justice going. Yes, quite true. But look at these lonely houses, each in its own field. They're filled for the most part with poor, ignorant folk who know little of the law. Think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which may go on year in, year out in such places, and none the wiser. Had this lady who appeals to us for help gone to live in Winchester, I should never have had a fear for her. Now, it's the five miles of country between makes the difference. Still, if she can come into Winchester to meet us, she has her freedom. Quite so. Can be the matter. Can you suggest no explanation? I have devised seven separate explanations. Each of them would cover the facts as far as we know them. 
but which of them is correct can only be determined by the fresh information that we shall no doubt find waiting for us at the Black Swan. Ah, there's the tower of the cathedral. I got his leave to come into town this morning. Oh, he little knew for what purpose. Pray let us have everything in its due order, Miss Hunter. Well, in the first place, I must say that I have met on the whole no actual ill treatment from Mr. and Mrs. Woolcastle. But I'm not easy in my mind about them. I can't understand them. What can you not understand? The reason for their conduct. But you shall have it just as it occurred. When I came down... Mr. Woolcastle met me here and drove me in his dog cart to Copper Beaches. Yes. I was introduced that evening to his wife and child. I gather that Mr. and Mrs. Woolcastle had been married about seven years. He was a widower. And his only child by his first wife was a daughter, who is now in Philadelphia. As she couldn't have been less than 20, I can quite imagine that her position must have been uncomfortable with her father's young, new wife. Yes, indeed. As for Mrs. Woolcastle, I now know that there was no truth in our conjecture in your rooms at Baker Street. She is not mad. I found her to be a mere non-entity, as colorless in mind as she is in features. Her husband is kind to her, but she seems to have some secret sorrow. Oh? The one unpleasant thing about the house which struck me at once was the appearance and manner of the two servants, a man and his wife. Toller, as he's called, is a rough, uncouth man with a perpetual smell of drink. His wife is tall and strong and very sour. And that's the entire household? Yes. Oh, except for Carlo. Carlo? Mr. Rucastle introduced me to him on my first evening there. Don't be frightened. He's well tied up. It's only Carlo, my mastiff. I call him mine, but really old Toller is the only one who can do anything with him. We feed him once a day, and not too much then, so he's always keen as mustard. Toller lets him loose every night, and heaven help the trespasser he lays his fangs into. Oh, and for goodness sake, Miss Hunter, don't you ever on any pretext set your foot over the threshold at night. It is as much as your life is worth. If you do. Very direct warning and no idle one, I fancy. But pray, Miss Hunter, continue your narrative. For two days after my arrival, my life was very quiet. On the third, Mrs. Newcastle came down just after breakfast and whispered in her husband's ear. Ah, yes, to be sure. Uh, Miss Hunter... My wife reminds me to say how much we are obliged to you for falling in with our whims so far as to cut your hair. And the effect is charming, my dear. It is nice of you to say so. I assure you it has not detracted the tiniest iota from your appearance. And now we shall see how a change of dress will become you. If you will kindly go up to your room, you will find one laid out ready on your bed. It belongs to my dear daughter, Alice, who's now in Philadelphia. It should fit you very well. Charming. Simply charming. Might have been made to measure, eh, Dan? A perfect fit. I was surprised to see how well it suited me. Perfect. 
Uh, now, Miss Hunter, be good enough to take the chair over there. The one with its back to the centre window. Ah, splendid. Now then, my dear, let us stay and talk with Miss Hunter for a little while, shall we? And they stayed there talking for about an hour, Mr. Holmes. Mr. Rucastle told some extremely funny stories. So funny that I laughed till I was tired. The odd thing was, though, that Mrs. Rucastle never so much as smiled at them. Then her husband suddenly remarked that I might change my dress and go about my daily duty. Well, two days later, the same thing happened. When he had had me laughing helplessly at his stories for a while, my employer handed me a novel, moved my chair slightly to one side, and asked me to read to him. I read for about ten minutes, and then suddenly in the middle of a sentence, he ordered me to stop and go and change my dress. I hope, Mr. Holmes, you don't find my story too protracted. I'm glad of the full details, whether they seem to you to be relevant or not. Well, I shall try not to miss anything of importance. You can imagine how curious I became as to the meaning of this extraordinary performance. For one thing, I noticed that they were always very careful to turn my face away from the window. Ah. I became consumed with a desire to see what was going on behind my back. Then a happy thought seized me. My hand mirror had been broken, and I concealed a small piece of the glass in my handkerchief. Good. On the next occasion, in the midst of the laughter, I put my handkerchief up to my eyes and was able, with a little management, to see all that there was behind me. And what was that? There was a man standing outside in the Southampton Road. He was small, and he had a beard. There were several others, but this one appeared to be looking earnestly in my direction. However, when I lowered my handkerchief, I found Mrs. Rucastle's eyes also fixed on me. She said nothing, but I'm convinced that she knew I had a mirror in my hand. She rose at once. Jeffro, <laughs> Jeffro, my dear, there's an impertinent fellow out on the road staring up at Miss Hunter. Really? A friend of Miss Hunter's, no doubt. I know no one in these parts, sir. Oh, dear me. How very impertinent, then. Kindly turn round and wave him away. Like this. Surely it would be better to take no notice. No. No, we should have him loitering here always. Exactly. Kindly turn round, Miss Hunter, and motion him to go away. Very well. Is that all you have to tell us, Miss Hunter? Almost all, Mr. Holmes. I had noticed that one wing of the copper beaches appeared to be quite uninhabited. Oh? When I saw Toller come from there yesterday and forget to take the key out of the partition door, I slipped in quickly enough. I found a little passage with three doors in a line. Two of them were open. The center one was closed and sealed with an iron bar and padlock. <sighs> My nerves failed me suddenly. I turned and ran straight into the arms of Mr. Rooker. So it was you, then? Oh, I, I'm so frightened. And what has frightened you, my dear young well, lady? It's so dreadfully still in there. It's so lonely and, and eerie. Only that? Why? What do you mean? Why do you imagine I locked the door to this wing? Well, I'm sure I don't know, sir. It's to keep out people who have no business here. Do you see now? Oh, well, I'm sure if I had known, well, I Well, would... then, you know now. 
And if you ever put your foot over that threshold again, I'll throw you to the Mastiff. Remember that, Miss... After that, I suppose I could have fled the house. But I must confess, my curiosity remained as strong as my fears. By the time I had sent you a wire, Mr. Holmes, I felt much easier. I had no difficulty getting leave to come here this morning, but I must get back by three. Mr. and Mrs. Rucastle are going on a visit early this evening, and I have to look after the child. That is well. What about Toller and his wife? I heard his wife telling Mrs. Rucastle that he's drunk himself into incapability. She can do nothing with him. Capital. Now, is there a cellar with a good, strong lock? Yes, the wine cellar. Do you think you could perform one more feat? I will try. Dr. Watson and I will be at the Copper Beaches by 7 o'clock. The Rucastles will be out by then? Yes. Yes, and Toller should still be incapable. Now, there only remains Mrs. Toller. If you could send her into the cellar on some errand and then turn the key on her, you would facilitate matters immensely. I will do it. Excellent. Watson. Yes, Holmes? I trust you have your revolver. Of course I have. There's only one feasible explanation for this business, and it's clear that we're dealing with a very cunning man. Very well then, Miss Hunter. We shall meet you at the Copper Beaches at 7 o'clock. Have you managed it? Yes. That's Mrs. Toller something to be let out. Toller is snoring on the kitchen rug. Here are his keys. Well done. Now, lead the way, and we shall soon see the end of this black business. This is the lock, room. Now, one of these keys must fit the lock. There's no sound from inside. I trust they're not too late. Ah, this is the one. There's no one here. Castle has guessed Miss Hunter's intentions and carried his victim off. But how? Through that skylight. Uh, we shall soon find out how he managed it. Yes. Yes, I can just see the end of the ladder against the eaves. But why should he need... I tell you, he's a clever and dangerous man. Holmes, someone's coming. Watson, have your pistol ready. Uh, So, I've caught you, have I? Villain, where's your daughter? It is for me to ask you that, you thieves. Spies and thieves. Thieves? But you're in my power. I'll serve you. He's gone for the door. I have my revolver. We'd better get downstairs and close the door. Great heaven, it's gone. Quickly, Watson. Go in and finish that brute. I tell you, Walker. Well, Rucastle will live at any rate. Then let us hear what Mrs. Toller has to tell us. It's clear to me that she knows more about this matter than anyone else. I've done so before now, for we got out of that cellar. Oh, Miss, it's a pity that I didn't know what you was planning. I'd have told you you were wasting your time. But how could I know? Pray, Mrs. Toller, let us hear it. There are several points on which I must confess I'm still in the dark. 
Well, she was never happy at home, wasn't Miss Alice? After he married again. You refer to Rucastle's daughter? Yes, sir. She wasn't happy. But things never got real bad for her till she took up with Mr. Fowler. Mr. Fowler? A seafaring gentleman. She met at a friend's house. And Rucastle objected to the association. Well, it wasn't just that, sir. You see, Miss Alice had a lot of money of her own by her mother's will. And there seemed to be a chance of her husband coming forward. Mr. Rucastle wanted her to sign a paper giving him control of the money whether she married or not. When she wouldn't, he kept at her so much that she talked about running away. Ah, then I think I can deduce all that remains. Rucastle, I presume, took to this system of imprisonment. Yes, sir. Do you mean that Alice never went to Philadelphia? That Mr. Rucastle kept her locked up in that room? Yes, and had the ingenious idea of bringing you down from London to impersonate her. To give the watching Mr. Fowler the impression that she no longer wished to encourage her. The laughter on these occasions was to convey the appearance that she remained in good spirits and was under no compulsion of restraint. But then, where is Alice now? I presume Mr. Fowler, being as persevering as a good seaman should be, succeeded by certain arguments in convincing that lady that her interests were the same as his. Mr. Fowler was a very kind-spoken, free-handed gentleman. Precisely. And in this way, he managed that your good man should have no want of drink and that a ladder should be ready at the moment when your master had gone out. He suspected something and came back. Like us, he was too late for his daughter. Oh, but Watson and Miss Hunter, here comes the lady. I presume it to be Mrs. Rucastle. Our locus standby now is rather a questionable one. I think we'd better make our way back to Winchester and say goodbye to the Copper Beaches forever. of the Copper Beaches was one of the stories of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. My name is Norman Shelley. My friend Carlton Hobbs played Sherlock Holmes and I was Dr. Watson. The script for this BBC production from London was by Michael Hartley. I look forward to the pleasure of your company again soon for more of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes.